Open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9 again this morning. Daniel chapter 9. We've been making our way through this book for the last several months. And what a tremendous book Daniel is. What a a joy it's been to preach it. Let's ask the Lord's help as we open up His Word. Father, enlighten our eyes and our hearts through Your Spirit. Give us understanding to understand and make sense of this very difficult passage. Accomplish your will through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began teaching through the end of chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, what many refer to as the 70 weeks of Daniel. I encourage you to go watch and listen, if you haven't already or missed it last week, to the sermon from last week that began the foundation of this passage and what today's message will be built upon. But I will quickly summarize for you what we talked about last week, in case you were not here. Daniel's 70-week prophecy is about 70 weeks of years. This is what verse 24 says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. 70 weeks literally means 70 sevens, or 70 groups of seven years. That equals up to 490 years. 70 times 7 is 490. Now, there are some people who see these, this time as a literal prophecy. I don't, as we saw last week. In fact, I think if you take them literally, the time doesn't make sense as to when Jesus came, because that's what the 70 weeks are all about. It's a messianic promise as to when the Messiah would come and what would happen when he came. I believe then we're to interpret the 70 weeks of Daniel chapter 9 more symbolically and theologically more than anything. With obviously there's some time approximation uh, in there of when the Messiah would come, but it was not meant in my belief to be taking exact to the minute when he would come. And the theological truth behind these numbers is glorious when you think about it. What we said last week is that the theological truth behind it revolved around uh, what God gave to Israel in the truth of the year of Jubilee. Israel was to keep track of time by groups of seven. So every seven years was one group, kind of like every seven days is one week, right? Start a new week. Well, every seven years, Israel would start a new Sabbath cycle. And then there would be another seven years, and that would be another Sabbath cycle. After seven cycles of seven years, which was 49 years, after the seventh one of those, on the 50th year, there was to be this year of Jubilee, in which a time where on the Day of Atonement, it was to be declared that the year of Jubilee would start, And all debts in the nation were canceled. All slaves were set free. And slaves being those who had uh, indebted themselves to a master because they owed them money or property. And all property was to go back to the original owner. This is a tremendous time. And actually, we have no evidence in the scripture that Israel actually ever did this in the Old Testament. But it was a time where God had prepared his people to understand what was coming. 
that in the messianic age, when the Messiah came, there would be a, a time when all debt was canceled and the slaves would be set free. And this promise of Messiah is what Gabriel is telling Daniel all about in Daniel chapter 9. Seventy weeks of 70 years is coming, or ten of these jubilee cycles. Ten is a number of completion and perfection in the scriptures as well. And at the end of 490 years, the Messiah would come, and it would be a year of jubilee, having people's debts canceled and slaves being set free, but of course not physically, but spiritually. This is exactly what the gospel of Jesus does. It sets the captives free, free from our sin, free from our bondage to it, and justifies us, justifies us in the presence of our God as a grace and a gift. And this is exactly what Jesus did. So Daniel 70 weeks again, we said last week, culminates in this year of Jubilee, which is the Messianic age, which is when he was supposed to arrive. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. This is what Gabriel says to Daniel. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. There were six purposes for these 70 weeks. This is what would happen. This is what God's going to do throughout this time. Finish the transgression. Put an end to sin and atone for iniquity. Of course, that culminates in what Jesus did as the Messiah. And as a result, there would be this everlasting righteousness. There would be both sealing of both vision and prophet, meaning everything that God said was going to happen would happen. All the prophecies of Messiah would come to completion and to anoint the most holy place. And I believe that refers, again, to the Lord Jesus at his baptism, being prepared and set apart for his ministry. All of these six reasons happened. But the clock would start ticking, Gabriel told Daniel, when the, 70, when the decree went forward to rebuild the city. Remember, Daniel prays in the beginning of this chapter. What's Daniel's heart? God, it's been 70 years. The prophet Jeremiah said that you said that we would be here for 70 years. Now send us back to the land. Let us rebuild the temple. And God answers his prayer. And he answers his prayer by this prophecy, strange prophecy, deep prophecy, mysterious prophecy of these 70 weeks. And we said that that happened because King Cyrus, we saw last week, was ordained by God to go send the Jews home, at least some of them, in the year 538 BC, to go and rebuild their temple. So the clock, the 70 weeks, 70 groups of seven, starts ticking in that year leading up to when Jesus came. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. Now, if Gabriel had told you this message, again, one of the first things on your mind would be when. Tell me how this is all going to shake down. How is this all going to play itself out? 
And Daniel explain, Gabriel explains this to Daniel, and he takes the 70 weeks and he divides it in three different ways. He says, Daniel, you have seven of those weeks happening here. And then 62 of those week, seven of the 70 happening here. And then there's la one last seven at the end, which makes 70. Seven, 62, and one. And so, Dave, so Gabriel is saying, yes, Daniel, your people are going home. Judah will be rebuilt. The temple is going to be rebuilt. And that is a part of the first seven sevens. Seven times seven is, help me out here, 49. 49 years. Interestingly, one jubilee cycle. Right? Seven cycles of seven on the 49th year. On the 50th year, the temple is rebuilt. And after those 49 years, this is what Gabriel tells him, from the word going forth to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince there shall be seven weeks. Anointed one. Who is this anointed one? Who is this anointed one? Well, the Hebrew word for anointed one here is Mashiach. Which is how we say it in English, Messiah. Messiah. Is this speaking of Jesus? No. Why? Well, first of all, because this would have to happen approximately when? 49 years or seven sevens of when Daniel's receiving this. Jesus wouldn't come for another 550 years later. So it's not speaking about Jesus. It's way too early for Jesus. Secondly, the term anointed one doesn't just mean the Messiah in the Old Testament. It actually has several different uses. And there are several people called Mashiach or the Messiah. For example, and shockingly, for example, in Isaiah 45.1, King Cyrus of Persia, yes, the Persian emperor, the Persian king, was called the anointed one by God in Isaiah 45, 1, because he sent the Jews back to rebuild. The word anointed one just means one set apart for a special purpose. The one set apart for a special purpose. Yeah, God used King Cyrus. He set him apart. He stirred up his heart, we saw last week, to send the Jews back home, and he even finances building the temple. It's really miraculous. Obviously, the Persian king is not the Messiah, like Isaiah 45, 1 says, but he bears that name as one set apart. So then, who else is this about? Who is it that comes within that first seven sevens that can be said of this when the temple is rebuilt? Obviously, being about the temple, it has to be about what? A priest. It has to be about someone who serves in the temple. And do we know who this is? Well, I believe we do. And let me give you the, the proof and the evidence of it here. I believe the anointed one that comes after this first seven sevens is a man named Joshua, the high priest. Joshua, the high priest. He was the first high priest when the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem. And in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah refers to him as an anointed one. Fitting the time frame and the example of when he came in that first seven of sevens. There's also another man named Anointed One, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, who also aided in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But I think 
Daniel chapter 9 is referring to Joshua, the high priest, being this anointed one coming within this first seven sevens. It is Joshua in the book of Zechariah that is pictured as one who is foreshadowing the Messiah. It is in Joshua we see all types of messianic language and a type of the Christ who was to come. How fitting that he would be this anointed one and bear this title of Messiah in the book of Zechariah. I I wish we had more time to go into this passage, but it's even in Zechariah where um, that Joshua the high priest uh, wears this sin-stained garment and then is given a new garment representing he's taking on the sins of the people of Israel, then receiving a, a garment of righteousness, picturing what the Lord Jesus would do as he takes off his robe and gives it to us, his righteousness, and, we, and he, gives, he takes on our sin. Again, I actually have a chapter that I wrote about Joshua the high priest in my book called The Two, which is, of course, available for free out there in the Welcome Center. Make sure you get that and look more about Joshua the high priest. But you know something also that's greatly significant about Joshua the high priest? The name Joshua in Hebrew is the name Yeshua. Now, how do you say Jesus' name in Hebrew? Yeshua. So here is Daniel given a prophecy that in the first 49 years, an anointed one would come, essentially answering his prayer about the rebuilt temple who would foreshadow this Messiah, not only in his name, Yeshua, but also in his duty as high priest. I don't think that's a coincidence, friends. I think the Lord knows exactly what he's doing. All right, so that's the first 49 years, or seven sevens. Temple gets rebuilt, city is on its way, people go back, and the high priest resumes the worship in this picture of Joshua, who I think is a messianic type to come. Look at the second half of that verse, because we have the second grouping of the 70 weeks. Then, for 62 weeks... It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. It's going to take 49 years to get the temple built and the city started. But it's going to continue to be built up over the next 62 of those 70 weeks. 62 times 7 is, oh, you don't know that one? 434. 434. And it will continue to be built up, Daniel. Don't worry about it. It's going to be built up. It's going to continue. But it will be a troubled time. And as we know, we just preached through the book of Malachi before we were in Daniel. Malachi, we went through that book. It's a hundred years after they go back and the people are in a state of deep apathy and sin and have already forgotten much of their God. They're worshiping without any kind of emotion or passion, and just going through the motions. It was a troubled time because during that time, the Jewish people would be underneath the Persian people, the Greek people, and of course the Roman people over that 434 years. Troubled time, being oppressed. It was during that same time that Queen Esther had to save her people in Persia from genocide and slaughter. It's underneath the Greek empire that The Jews lost their freedom to worship as one of the kings of Greece, Antiochus Epiphanes, desecrated the temple by putting up a statue of Zeus and tried to take the Jewishness out of the people and to train them into just being Greek. Oh, it was a troubling time indeed. I I think what Gabriel is saying here to Daniel, yeah, you've done 70 years. 
But Daniel, there's 70 times 7 more to come. Those numbers are not coincidental. 70, 70 times 7. All of that is very significant, pointing, pointing to a deep theological truth here. There is more trouble coming, Daniel. The next 400 and something years is not going to be a walk in the park. Yeah, you're out of Babylon. Some of your people go home. You get your identity back. But it's not going to be all that you think it is. See, because the Jews thought when they go back home, time of Messiah is here. Messianic kingdom is here. Let's go. This is why in Malachi, they grow so apathetic. We're waiting and waiting and waiting and nothing is happening. Yeah, we got our temple. Yeah, we got our land. But here God tells Daniel hundreds of years before, what? Seven sevens, 62 sevens. Yeah, it'll be rebuilt. But you'll also have a very troubled time. And don't also, also don't forget, during that time, there was 400 years of silence from God. God did not speak through a prophet for 400 years. Amazing. Look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now, notice what it says here. Very important. After the 62 weeks. Right? Now, don't forget, he's already talked about the first seven, right? So, I know you're really good at math. What is 62 plus 7? 69. What comes after the 69th week? What comes after 69? 70. Oh, you guys are on the money. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. So what comes after 69th week? The 70th week. Now look what he says. After the 62, meaning 62 plus the first seven. So after the 69, so 69 weeks have been completed. We got one more week to go, right? One more week to go, the 70th week. What happens then? An anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing, nothing This is very important because this is where a lot of the debate comes in. A lot of the confusion and various views and interpretations come in. Because some of my friends who would call themselves dispensational hold to a view that there is a gap of time between the 69th and the 70th week. That God hit pause on the prophetic calendar and the 70th week is still to come. I obviously differ from that view for various reasons that I'm going to explain this morning. I don't believe the 70th week is still to come. I believe the 70th week has already begun. And if you see here what it says, after the 62 weeks or 69, what happens? An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That is our reference to understand when things happen in time. Now, who is this anointed one? Well... Again, it's the same word, Mashiach, Messiah. This time, it's not a foreshadowing of somebody like Cyrus or Joshua, the high priest. No, now that we come to the end of that calendar and the messianic age is here, 
It is speaking about the Messiah. It is speaking about the anointed one of God. He who is set apart for a special purpose. He who left heaven and became a man. Yes, the son of God, Jesus Christ. What happens to him when? After the 69 weeks. After, meaning 69 weeks is done. Which means we are now heading into week 70, the final one. He shall be cut off. This is a Hebrew way of saying he was killed. He was killed. To be cut off was a Hebrew expression. To be removed. Or to receive a curse. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus Gabriel is telling Daniel here that in that last week, when the year of Jubilee is about to take place and happen, the Messiah, the anointed one, will be killed. Where else do we see this language? Obviously, Jesus has already been killed. He's already been crucified after the 69th week. We see this language in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, of course, here's Isaiah's prophecy way before Daniel. And Isaiah uses the same language that Gabriel tells Daniel here of what the Messiah would do and what would happen to him. And Isaiah 53, 7 through 10, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Of course, speaking of Messiah. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Here's that language. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Meaning he died. Stricken for the transgression of my people. How does Messiah die? He is stricken for what? The sins of God's people. And what would happen to this Messiah who is cut off? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, he was innocent. They crucified him, they killed him, and he had done no wrong. He was pure and innocent. He was like a spotless lamb. And yet he was crucified. He was killed with other wicked people, buried with them. Like a rich man in his death. We know all this is fulfilled in Christ. Buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Crucified between the two thieves. All that. What does Isaiah say in verse 10? Yet all that was not a mistake. All this was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Again, this language speaks to of Messiah in Daniel chapter 9. After 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. Cyrus died. There was no extra words or thoughts about that. Joshua the high priest died. 
He was anointed one, but guess what? His death doesn't mean anything. His death doesn't atone for the sins of God's people. His sin is not newsworthy in the realm of prophetic literature. His coming was so the temple could be seen to be rebuilt. But this anointed one is way different. This anointed one is far above all the others. And his death matters. His death is what you could see God's prophetic calendar aiming for. It is this death that's been prophesied since the book of Genesis. It is this anointed one that was the curse of the serpent and the promise to Eve. That one day serpent, Satan, the seed of this woman shall crush your head, bruise your head. You're going to bruise his heel, but he shall bruise your head. A fatal blow does the seed of the woman, Eve's seed, deliver to the evil one. And how does he do that? He is cut off. He dies. This is what Daniel is being told. After the 69 weeks, this is how you know the year of Jubilee is here. The year of Jubilee is coming. Why? Because he has to be die. He has to be cut off. Mark that on your calendar. Mark that on your timeline. The cross is significant all the time. It is the moment in history that God has foreordained before the foundations of the world. Jesus is like a lamb who had been slain since the foundation of the world. Because this is the purpose for which he came. To die for the sins of God's people. In this new covenant that God the Father makes with his Son to redeem a people. To redeem a people from all peoples, all tribes and tongues and nations. So that the Son would have a bride, a people after his own possession. How does he achieve this? Oh, it's coming, Daniel. You know that Passover lamb? Yeah, it's about him. You know the priest and the temple and the sacrifices? It's about him. Remember David and Goliath and Daniel and the lions then? It's all about him. It's all pointing to him. God's prophetic calendar is all about the cross. You take out the cross and you lose everything. You lose the purpose of everything. The Bible then can just be a fable book. The Bible, you take away the cross, the Bible is just a book on how to be a good person. But we know that's not what the Bible's about. The Bible's not about how to be a good person or, or how to be moral. The, pers- the Bible is a book about God's revelation of who he is, a holy God, and who we are, sinful people who fall short of his glorious standard. And we have rebelled and sinned against him and our father Adam. And this is why God became a man to redeem us from the curse that we have inflicted upon ourselves. This prophecy is coming, Daniel. He's finally coming. And he comes after the 69th week. And he will die. He will die. We're going to talk more about the 70th week next week when we get to verse 27. But let's keep moving for now. Again, I don't see a gap. I don't see a pause. I, don't, I see the 69th week going right into the 70th week. Verse 27 is not happening later. It's a redescription of verse 26. More on that next week. But what happens after Messiah dies, Daniel or Gabriel? What happens after he is cut off? Look, listen to this. And the people of the prince who is to come 
shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, isn't this something? Now, remember where all this started, right? Remember, Daniel's praying. God, send us home. God, glorify yourself. God, build the temple again. We've become a byword to the nations out here. God, please do what you've promised. Daniel's confessing his sin, repenting of his sin. And God says, here's the answer, Daniel. You're going back home. You're going to get the temple. You're going to get the Messiah. And then the temple and the city are going to be destroyed again. And the way you say, what? Don't you love when God answers your prayer with the exact opposite thing you've prayed? Like Daniel's saying, okay, temple, great, yeah, we're good, we're good, we got back, it's here forever. No, it's not going to be here forever because it's not needed forever once the Messiah is cut off. Daniel doesn't know that yet. But he says, once the Messiah dies, after that, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Jerusalem will be destroyed again. The sanctuary, that's the temple, will be destroyed again. This is what Daniel's hearing in Daniel chapter 9. Messiah's coming, new city, new temple, great, you got it. It's not going to last forever. And yep, that actually happened. That actually happened. Who is the people of the prince? That's the Romans. And who is this prince that destroyed the city and the temple? It was the Roman Emperor Titus in the year 70 AD. By the way, there's that number again, 70. 70 years in Babylon, 77s, and now in the year 70 AD, what happens? The Roman Emperor Titus squashed a Jewish revolt. This is 40 years after the resurrection. The, Jew- Roman, the Romans squashed the Jewish revolt, decimated the city of Jerusalem. Titus then goes into the temple of God. He goes into the temple of God and he sacrifices a pig on the altar. Desecrating the temple. Daniel would later refer to this as the abomination of desolations. In chapter 11, we'll get to that in a couple years. Titus sacrifices a pig on the altar of God to show his hatred and mockery of the God of Israel. And the end of Jerusalem did come like a flood, like a tsunami. And it wiped everything out. Not literal water, but war ravaged the city. People were starving. So much so, and this is going to be grotesque. People were starving, and even this is even prophesied, that even mothers were eating their children. So what happens in the year 70? War, disease, famine. It shall come with a flood. And to the end there should be war. Okay, this is not talking about the end of the, end of the world. It's talking about the end of Jerusalem and the temple itself. Incredible. Jesus warned them of those days in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. A lot to say about that, but we'll 
just mention a few things now. Jesus was crucified approximately year 29 to 30 AD. This happens 40 years later in the year 70. The Apostle Paul missionary journeys happen. Everything happens. Gospel goes forth. Paul's beheaded in the 60s. Jewish revolt happens in the year 70, and they are squashed. And this is what Jesus said would happen. Listen, Matthew 24, chapter, verse 1. Jesus is at the temple with his disciples. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is warning them 40 years before it happens. The temple is beautiful, isn't it? And Herod rebuilt the temple and uh, not rebuilt the temple, but, you know, refurbished the temple and made it beautiful. Herod's temple in the days of Jesus was a beautiful sight. Not one stone will be left, not thrown down. All this beautiful architecture, buildings, gone. Jesus is prophesying what would happen 40 years later. The same thing that Gabriel tells Daniel in chapter 9. The people, the prince, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It then shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Incredible. He also then later says in that same chapter, Matthew 24, 15, and he warns the disciples, and he warns the people of Jerusalem this things. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by who? The prophet Daniel. Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 11. When you see the abomination of desolation, he's talking about what Titus would do in the temple, sacrificing the pig. Standing in the holy place, Here he is with his pig in the most holy, sacred place of the temple. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You better run. Don't you stay behind. Let one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Don't don't get your going away bag. Just run. And let the one who is in the field don't turn back to get his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be on winter or on a Sabbath, for there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until now, no, and will never be. Jesus is referencing the the desecration and the destruction of Jerusalem in the year AD 70. And it happened. Just like God said it would happen. After 69 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off. And then the people of the prince, speaking of the Romans and the emperor, Titus, desecrates the temple, brings war in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is no more. Amazing. There is no gap of time. Straightforward. So what do we do with this? We're going to save 27 for next week. What what, what do we do with this? (laughs) Maybe at at first glance where it's like, oh, you know, we feel really bad for Daniel. You know, maybe he was so excited in the beginning of Gabriel's message that, hey, yeah, what his prayers are going to be true. His prayers are going to be answered. 
And then the temple that gets rebuilt is then destroyed. The sanctuary destroyed. There'll be troubled times. Yeah, it's not going to be easy. But here's the good news. An anointed one shall be cut off. And then in verse 27, he says what that anointed one does by making covenant and by saving God's people. There is hope, Daniel. There is promise. There is going to be some rough, rough times coming. But it's all coming and pointing towards that anointed one. And don't feel bad for Daniel. That there's no temple in Jerusalem. Or feel bad for the Jews today that there's no temple in Jerusalem. Because it's no longer needed. Jesus Christ is the temple of God. He even said so himself. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice of the Lamb. He is the, all those sacrifices put together. And once Jesus was offered up once, it was enough for all time. Period. No more sacrifices needed. No more going to the temple to ask a priest to offer prayers up for you. No more standing outside the Holy of Holies because you're no longer worthy to go in. Now we are found worthy in Jesus Christ because we're declared righteous as a gift by His grace. Because of what He did, He died on the cross for our sins. And through our faith, by His grace, we now believe and are become born again. And we don't need a physical place to go to to have our sins forgiven. We have the Son of God Himself. And this is the gospel. And that... He didn't stay dead, did he? He was cut off. But as we saw in Isaiah, he shall see his offspring and the Lord shall prosper his hand. It's all about Jesus, friends. It's all about Jesus. We don't have a temple today to go to. We don't need it. So what does Jesus give us as a reminder, he gives us the Lord's Supper. The Lord's table is a reminder of what he did for us. That he is the sacrifice that ended all sin. That will one day remove the curse from this world. He is the one who gave himself up in his broken body with his blood that was spilled that makes great redemption and satisfaction to God on our behalf. This is what God has commanded us now in the new covenant. We're in the new covenant. Old covenant, you had a temple. New covenant, we have Christ. The old covenant were shadows of things to come. We don't need the shadows because we have Him. Those are just shadows reflecting Him. We have Him that we can remember. We have Him that we can rejoice in today. We have Him whom we can worship. We have Him who is our advocate. We have Him with whom pleads with us, pleads on our behalf for us. We have Him. All this points to Christ. This is what Daniel's being told, and of course he doesn't comprehend it, and I don't blame him. He, we have the Luxury of standing on this side of history, looking back, seeing the word of God fulfilled. And these things come true in Christ and what God said would happen. And today, there is still no temple. And I believe that is by design. Because the temple would just detract and take away from the ultimate sacrifice that's already been paid 
for the sins of those who believe. So now as we conclude this service, let us turn our heart and attention to him, as we've been told. Towards him, who is this one who was cut off. This is what we're remembering today. And he did that because of our sin. He had to reconcile us to God. He had to obey for us. He had to die for us. He had to live for us. And he did. So today, as we remember the Lord's Supper together as a church, I ask you to partake with us if you are a born-again believer. If you are a Christian, if you, have, if you are in Christ, I ask you to partake. And you partake in a worthy manner as the Scriptures take us, tell us to. Examining ourselves, confessing sin and repenting, remembering Christ. Not thinking about lunch or thinking about um, something else or having our minds distracted. Coming to Him for understanding who He is and what He has done for us. And remembering Him as God has commanded us to do. If you are in Christ, we ask you to help partake with us this morning. If not, please abstain. And may God use this to nourish you with His presence. And feed our souls as He's, commanded, as he's told us and promised us. That He will never leave us nor forsake us with the spirit that he has given to us to indwell us as a seal until the day of our redemption. Let's pray as we go into the Lord's Supper. If the deacons would join me up front.